I'd like to just start with a few introductions, if I could, and to, to um, first of all, um, thank you very much, um, Venerable Bodhi, for joining us and for sharing some teachings on the Samyutta Nikaya. Um, for those of you that don't know me on the recording, my name is Shyla Catherine, and I'm the founding teacher for Insight Meditation South Bay. We've been doing study groups on the Samyutta Nikaya now for three years, and um, both online and locally. And uh, Bhante, we really appreciate that you're willing to give us some um, teachings on this subject, since my approach to reading these texts has mostly been to see how they um, affect us in our practice, what their implications are for our practice, and to encourage students to reflect individually on them. I have not presented very much of a historical background, although over time, people pick up a lot from just reading the text. So we have a little bit of time in this um, recorded conversation to discuss some of the uh, issues and questions that have come up over the course of studying it. Um, yeah. And I would like to also introduce the other people that are in this call. They are members of our online study group. Um, we have um, David, who initiated the call from Utah. Right. Yeah. Good evening. Good evening. And we have Katrina from Georgia. Greetings, Bhante. From the state, Georgia, or from the country? From the state. Okay. <laughs> and we have um, Anne from Florida. Wow, you have quite a national group of students. Good evening, Bhante. Good, e good evening. And we have Shari from California. Good evening, Bhante. Good evening. And um, although our, our online group actually has 25 people in it, um, we're just going to represent the group um, as a small group tonight. Mm. Okay. So would you be willing to um, provide us a little bit of, um, yeah, with some background perhaps to the Samyutta Nikaya, to describe maybe a little bit of the significance or the structure of the character of the texts. <clears throat> okay, I think one could even present a hypothesis that in the collection, the original collection of the Buddha's discourses, the original compilation, at least that there's a theory that's been presented by the great Chinese scholar-monk, Venerable Yinchun, that the Sangyutta Nikaya, or its counterparts in some of the other schools, the Sangyut Agama, was the oldest collection of the Buddhist discourses. I'm not sure that I completely agree with him on that, but we know that the Buddha often presented his teachings in the form with giving emphasis to what are called um, particular doctrinal categories. For example, many of the discourses would emphasize themes like dependent origination, the five aggregates, the six sense bases, um, the four noble truths, and then the various groups of practice factors like the four satipatthanas or basis of mindfulness, the right efforts, and so on. And so if we actually look at the we put aside tentatively the first book of the Sangyutta Nikaya, 
that is the collection with verses, and we take a look at the other chapters, and we see that so many of them are concerned with the principal doctrinal themes of the Buddha's teaching. And what I found to be particularly interesting, when I was doing this work, I looked at, it was a scholarly essay that had been written early in the 20th century by a Japanese scholar who compared the, or at least he set up the correspondences between the Pali Sangyuta Nikaya and the Sangyuktagama, the counterpart of that preserved in Chinese translation. And if one looks at the sequence in the Chinese version, one sees that it's actually mirroring or reflecting the structure of the Four Noble Truths. That is, in the Chinese version, they've put as the first major collection the collected discourses on the five aggregates. Then they have the second major book is the collected discourses on the six or 12 sense bases. Now, we know from a number of suttas that the Buddha sometimes simply summarizes the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, not by going through birth, old age, sickness, and death, by just expressing the first noble truth very concisely as the five aggregates or the six sense bases. So we could see right there that this is these two major groupings of discourses are collecting the um, variety of suttas which are expounding the first noble truth indirectly through the aggregates and sense bases. Then the next major collection or next major chapter within the Chinese collection is the one on dependent origination. In the Pali version, the section on dependent origination precedes the aggregates and sense bases. But in the Chinese version, it comes after the collections on the aggregates and sense bases. And now dependent origination in forward order, going from ignorance to old age and death, represents the second noble truth. And then taking dependent origination in reverse order, the order of cessation, we have the third noble truth. And so we could see in by placing deep, the chapter on dependent origination in that position, we are putting, uh, we are inserting the second and third noble truths. And then after some other chapters, then the Chinese version has the big collection on the groups of path factors, like the Eightfold Path, Seven Factors of Enlightenment, Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and so on. And in fact, within the Chinese collection, this is called not, as in Pali, the Mahavaga, the Great Division, but it's called, the Chinese uh, Sanskrit title would turn out to be Marga Varga, that is the division on the path. And so here we have the whole collection of chapters that are dealing with different factors that constitute the path, which is the fourth noble truth. And so if the original Sangyutta Nikaya had been arranged in that way, we could see that it is actually a kind of vast expansion of the concise formula of the Four Noble Truths. It, 
it's a beautiful presentation, it sounds like. But um, why do you think that isn't presented that way in the polytexts? Instead, we start with uh, many, many little verses of devas and um, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know why, but, but I don't know why in the Pali the it's called the Sagatavaga. That means the division with the verses. Why that was placed first, if I remember correctly, in the version that's come down in the Chi <clears throat> Chinese transmission, the collection, the division with verses. I think it comes either at the end or very close to the end. But what seems pretty clear to me, at least, this is rather speculative, is that the division with verses has a somewhat <clears throat> supplementary character to the other main divisions of the Sangyutta Nikaya, as if the compilers found, of course, many, you know, small suttas dealing with different types of persons, devas, kings, what are some of the others, devas, kings, Mara, bhikkhunis, um, brahmas, you know, brahma deities, brahmins, and then some miscellaneous ones, like in the woods with yakshas and with Saka, the king of the gods. And so because this multitude of short suttas could be arranged into chapters focusing upon one unifying topic, the appropriate place for it was in the Sangyutta Nikaya, and yet it didn't quite fit in thematically with the other major books of the Sangyutta Nikaya, like on causation, the aggregates, the sense bases, and the path factors. So it had to go either at the beginning or at the end. And so the, it seems that in the two transmissions, they made different decisions about where to place this book. The Pali transmission placed it at the beginning and the, um, the transmission that wound up in Chinese translation placed it at or near the end. So they just had to make some decision about where to place it, and then they came to different different decisions about where to put it. I don't know what the reason would be for the difference in decisions. Yeah. For that, we would have to consult people who have been deceased for the last 2,500 years or so. Yeah, rather difficult to do, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and these... Um... These discourses do seem to be particularly, it's particularly profound and, and a particularly um, profound collection. As we've been reading um, this collection, I think even though we haven't been reading it in that order of the Four Noble Truths, as you described, yeah. Yeah. the themes keep circling around the Four Noble Truths quite yeah. Uh, vividly. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought of a, a possible explanation why the Pali tradition put the chapter with the verses at the beginning. This is purely a speculative um, explanation, but it could be that monks who are giving discourses would, you see, it's very convenient when giving a discourse to choose a verse 
or a set of verses and then elaborate on the verses. And so possibly they put that collection at the beginning in order to have a very convenient repository of verses to select from when giving formal discourses. Because then one begins by reciting the verse and then one gives the discourse as an explanation of the verse. You've translated quite a few texts. I'm curious what your personal impressions of this, uh, of the Samyutta Nikaya are. Uh, what was your experience working with it? By this question, you mean what are kind of hypotheses I came up with about how, what kind of function it might have served? I'm not quite sure the- You can answer that question, sure. Okay, what occurred to me as I was, well, since I had read the four Nikayas, actually, even before I started translating, when I was just a newly ordained monk in Sri Lanka, after I had learned Pali, I read through the four Nikayas and the older books of the Kudaka, the fifth Nikaya, taking notes. And this is the way I, I actually learned the suttas well when I was taking in the process of studying them. <laughs> Perhaps I was a monk back <laughs> in the Savastivada school, which preserved the Sanskrit Chinese version of the Sangyutta Nikaya. But what I wanted to do is lay out the teachings in the form of topics so I started first by using the three jewels as my initial topics, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Okay, on the Buddha, I don't remember whether I had divided that into different topics, but under Dharma, I believe I took first the Four Noble Truths as the main themes. Then I broke down the Noble Truth of Dukkha into first, well, first I had simple statements on all four noble truths, but then taking the truth of dukkha, I had straightforward statements on suffering, but then I had statements on the five aggregates, the next category statements on the 12 sense bases, and statements on the 18, six or 18 elements and so on. Then the next major category group was on pertaining to the origination of dukkha. Then I had sayings or statements on dependent origination, statements more specifically about craving, statements more specifically about upadana, clinging, statements about ditti or views, and statements about the process of karma and rebirth. Then under the third noble truth, statements about Nibbana or statements about liberation without specific mention of Nibbana. Then under the fourth noble truth, a whole variety of subtopics like the threefold training, virtue, concentration, wisdom, um, the sequential training that we find so often in the Majjhima Nikaya, 
you know, about the process of going forth into homelessness, then observing the silas, the moral observances, sense restraint, um, mindfulness and clear comprehension, and so forth. Then the groups of sayings on the Eightfold Noble Path, Seven Factors of Enlightenment, Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Okay, so in this way, as I was going through, I was taking pertinent and pithy st statements that I came across in each of the Nikayas and putting, not copying the whole statement, but putting the reference to them under these headings. And so from... Monty, yeah. are you saying that when you read the discourses for the first time, you, 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 um, it did some kind of systematic uh, structure of how they fit into the, the, the primary doctrine and the teachings? Yeah, well, this wasn't the first time that I read the discourses. I first read them in English translations. And then when I read them in English translations, then I, then I went through in direct order and just made notes according to the order of my reading. You know, beginning, I think I began with the Majjhimanikaya and then just going from Sutta 1 to 152, making a little summary of each Sutta. Yeah. And then, yeah, then taking but, notes <laughs> as I read each of the other Nikayas. But when so I, I read this, it's really important for students to hear because when we re when we read the texts, um, I think it's very important that we not just read them the way that we you know would consume a novel or read oh, a newspaper article, but yeah. we engage with them in some way. And it sounds like one of the ways that you were engaging with the texts yeah. is by by writing the summary. So you had to think through what the um, you know what the, the 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 primary teaching was in that discourse or the or seeing where each discourse fit in a in a broader scheme of the Buddhist doctrine and the primary teachings. So as Yo. you were reading them, you were making sense of them in the broader system. Yeah, the, fir the first time I read through, as I said, in English, then I made my notes based simply on the order of the suttas within the Nikayas. But then the second time, this is when I was reading, the first time I read them through in English, in the English translations, which were at that time what was available were the translations from the Pali Text Society. Then the second time, and at the same time that I was reading them through in English translation, then I was learning Pali. This was my first year as a monk in Sri Lanka. Then after I learned Pali well enough to be able to read the text in the original, then I went through a second time in Pali reading them through, of course, still in the direct sequence, but building up the scheme of categories and then putting the references to the suttas, or at least the passages that I came across, putting those references into the scheme of the categories that I developed. You know, as I went, I didn't have the full scheme of categories already in advance. I started off with a kind of general scheme of categories and as I went reading, sometimes I saw that an idea that I thought would fit comfortably under one division started to become so populated with suttas that I had to break it off and make it a new division, a kind of independent division in its own right. And then my reading also, you know, introduced me to new ideas, which indicated that 
to capture this idea, we needed still another topic. In fact, I still have those collection of notes someplace here, handwritten notes in the fountain pen that I was using in Sri Lanka during the period roughly 1973-1974. And I was looking for them the other day, but I couldn't find them. I find this very inspiring, actually, to hear, um, and it's one of the things that interests me in um, in offering these study groups is to help people, encourage people to develop, uh, uh, to use the texts, to incorporate yeah. the texts in their understanding of practice. Yeah. And I am also curious how you um, approach the, the the idea of developing um a practice that includes study or includes the suttas. And many people, when they say practice, they, they often just yeah. mean sitting with their eyes closed, meditating. Um, yeah. But I think we have a different understanding. And I'd, 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 would you speak to that point for a moment? Yeah. You know, when I first became interested in, Buddha, in Buddhism, when I first became a Buddhist back when I was in graduate school in the late 1960s in Claremont, California, my thought was, you know, I just want to do meditation. And at that time, I came to live with a Vietnamese Buddhist monk who was um, studying, who came from Vietnam, and he was studying in the same graduate school where I was studying. And so I told him, or I suggested we should get a house off campus up in the mountains, just behind the Claremont Graduate School. There was a mountain range. And I even thought maybe drop out of graduate school and go off to Asia to become a monk right away. And he was the one who emphasized to me the importance of learning the languages and reading the the texts. And so through his influence, even though he went back to Vietnam, but when I decided to go to Sri Lanka to become a monk, then I thought it's important that I find a teacher who is, you know, has a, a reputation as a the reputation for textual mastery. And so I wound up sort of slipping into, you might call the Sri, Lank Sri Lankan Pali scholarly tradition, like my ordination teacher, who was my first Dharma teacher, was the Venerable Balangoda Maitreya Mahanayaka Taro, who was you know, an extremely learned monk in Sri Lanka. And so I fit into that tradition in which there's an emphasis on combining study and meditation practice and using the texts as the guide to one's practice and always sort of trying to ground one's practice within the texts. Excuse me, Bonte, this is Shari. I was wondering if I might ask a rather mundane question. <laughs> No mundane questions. <laughs> well, oh. I just I just wondered how long you were studying uh, Pali before you felt competent to begin to understand the suttas and Pali canon in the original language. Let's see. I think I started to read them. 
I must have started to study Pali November 1972. And then I, st I think I started to read them using, of course, the existing English translations as a pony. Is that the right word that's used? You know, one reads the English translation and, and looks at the Pali text, maybe in March, so November, December, January, February. Yeah, so about March mating, making, you know, halting attempts to read, say, March and April 73. And then also, you know, I was reading together with my teacher. Actually, my teacher started me off. I, I wouldn't do this with my own students, but he started me off with the verse collection of the Sangyuta Nikaya, the Sagata Vaga Sangyuta. And some of those suttas are not easy in Pali. But I think at, at a certain point, I realized that they were not easy in Pali. And so then we switched from the verse collection to, I think we switched over to the some suttas from the Majjhima Nikaya. Oh. How important do you think it is um, for um, uh, a practitioner to understand the Pali? I, I, I'm particularly curious, since most of us don't know Pali, um, what gets lost in the translation? What is it that we really don't have access to? Okay, there's two questions here. So let's, the first in response to the first question, I'd say, you know, if one's primary intention is practical, I say one doesn't have to know the Pali language per se. It's possible to read the text in English translation. In fact, one doesn't even really have to know that much of the text, though I say it's helpful to one's practice to read the text, but it's not an absolutely indispensable requirement. And then if one can read the text in English translation, or whatever one's uh, native language is, and get a clear idea of what the texts are saying. I would say that that is sufficient. It's useful, even if one doesn't learn Pali, to still have what I would call an acquaintance with the Pali technical terminology. So, and to see maybe some of the meanings of the terms, like, okay, we have variety of translations of Paticca Samuppada, okay, dependent origination, dependent arising, condition genesis. Some say interdependent origination, dependent co-origination. Okay, but it's good to be able to look at the original expression and see what is this word Paticca, where does it derive from? And look at this word Samuppada, how is it to be explained? How does it, how is it derived? Okay, so if one's primary intention is practical, I say it's sufficient to have a kind of working familiarity with the primary doctrinal terminology, but it's not necessary to be able to read the text in the Pali itself. But I'd say that, you know, that there's a benefit in having an extensive understanding of the texts themselves. 
in that case, it's an advantage to be able to read in Pali. And the reason why it's such a strong advantage, I would say two basic reasons, at least maybe there are some others. One is that the terms have very precise, or at least most of the terms have very precise meanings in Pali that get somewhat lost or blunted when we rely on English translations. Because in any language, words are always embedded within a complex you know, network of resonances and connotations and systems of mutual reference. Um, and so when we look at the terminology of the texts, of the Buddhist texts, then inevitably, when we look at them in English, inevitably we bring along the resonances and suggestions and connotations that a word will have in English. For example, to give one concrete example, sometimes when people are explaining what is the origin of, or not to speak about the origin, let's take the very word dukkha, which is, you know, the keystone of the Buddha's teaching, the foundation of all Four Noble Truths. Okay, so how are we going to translate that? We translate it suffering, then we get the impression, or at least many people get the impression, okay, the Buddha or Buddhism, it's all concerned with suffering. So it's a pessimistic teaching. The Buddha says body, feelings, perception, mental activities, consciousness is dukkha. That's all suffering. Wow, what a bleak, despairing, negative view of the world even though the third truth says that there's release from dukkha. But still, just taking the first noble truth, if it's translated suffering, it seems very negative and very pessimistic. But if we understand the real meaning of dukkha within its framework of references, then we see that suffering only captures part of the meaning. And then we have a more precise understanding. I was originally going to take up the second noble truth. Okay, so some people, when they're explaining the second noble truth, then they say, what is the origin of suffering? The origin of suffering is desire. Then, again, one seems to, again, to have a rather bleak perspective on life, since one is saying, well, any kind of desire is just a cause of suffering. And Buddhism, again, it's so negative because it's discouraging all desire. Okay, I want to do some good in the world. That's a desire. You're creating suffering. You want to help others. Ah, that's a desire. You're creating suffering. And then, you know, some of the tricksters want to sort of catch you in a self-contradiction. Ah, you're practicing the Dharma to achieve Nibbana. That's a desire. So how are you going to end desire by developing desire? Okay, but if we look into the Pali, we see that the word that represents the second noble truth is not a word which accurately means desire the way we understand it in English, but the word is tanha, which has a 
which denotes a very particular type of desire. It's the desire, which is, we call it self-centered or egotistical desire, or a kind of insatiable thirst for pleasure, for continued being, for you know the experience of the objects through the six sense bases. And so this is a much more specific idea than is suggested by the English word desire. So this is one advantage of being able to read the Pali is to get the precise meanings of the terms. And then a second advantage is that one could see very intricate interconnections between terms which could be lost in English translation. Um, let me see if I could come up with an example. Okay, let me just try this one. I don't know if this is the best the best choice. Okay, we have a word, of course, you all know the word karma or the Pali kamma. And then within the links of dependent origination, we have the second link is sankara, which there are so many translations of the word sankara could be volitional. Well, I've been using volitional activities. Some I used to use following Nyanamoli, Venerable Nyanamoli formations. The Venerable Tani Saro uses fabrications. I've seen some translators use concoctions. Some use confections. <laughs> so <laughs> we think of confections as being pastries and sweets. Okay, but now the word sankara, if one knows how words are formed in Pali, one sees that it's based on a prefix, sung, which suggests together, working together, and kara, which means deed or doing. And the word kara is derived from the same verb as the word kama. They're both derived from the word, from the verb karoti, to do. And so the sankaras are literally co-doings, deeds which are done through the functioning together of a multiplicity of conditioning factors. And kama is also deeds, deeds which are done through volition. And so in this way, by looking into the Pali, one could see the connection between kama and sankaras, where if one just relies on English translation, that kind of connection will be lost. Interesting. Bonte, we, I was wondering if as you uh, were, were translating over time, we notice that sometimes your choice of terms changes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I was just wondering if 
um, if that reflects a shift in your understanding or uh, just perhaps some new knowledge of the uh, semantics of the word. Okay. I remember one of the terms that Shyla had pointed out, had underscored in the notes that she sent me about upcoming questions was the rendering of the Pali word Nibida, which in the middle length discourses I had rendered disenchantment. Now I have to say the middle length discourses was not originally my translation. This was Venerable Nyanamoli's translation. But I think he had rendered Nibida. I made some revisions to his translation of the Majjhimunikaya. I think he had rendered Nibida. Let me see if I've made a note on that. But I think I was not happy with his rendering of Nibida in the middle late discourses, and I think I had changed it to disenchantment. Let me take a quick look whether I noted that in the introduction. Oh, yeah, he had rendered it dispassion, which to my mind, dispassion is much better for the raga. Usually we have the sequence seeing things as they really are, and that's followed by nibida. Then comes the raga, and the raga is what I would render as dispassion. So for the middle length discourses, I changed Nanamoli's dispassion to disenchantment. Okay, then when I was doing the translation of the connected discourses, the Sangyuta Nikaya, I kept disenchantment. And I had the whole thing translated with disenchantment. But then I had sent the draft translation to a number of other monks for comments. And one monk, whose name I don't have to mention here, made a very strong case for changing it to revulsion. I think he gave me the choice be revulsion or disgust. And I didn't like it, and I tried to argue against him. But then he presented me with one passage from a different context where it was clear that for Nibida, disenchantment would not work, whereas revulsion was successful. So with a hasty, over-hasty decision, I went through and revised the whole thing to include, to change disenchantment to revulsion. Okay, then the book appeared in print, and I looked at it, and I saw revulsion instead of disenchantment, and I had to use my hand, hit my head, the forehead with the hand, and say, oh, why did I do that? I should have kept disenchantment. And so if you if you know if you're familiar now with the translation of the numerical discourses, the Anguttara Nikaya, I've gone back to disenchantment there. 
It's interesting to hear the process. I'm curious also about a few other words. Um, yeah. You tend to use dukkha as um, suffering for the yeah. most part. I'm yeah. curious why you choose that instead of unsatisfactoriness, because there are quite a few people that are preferring unsatisfactoriness now. What's your um, reason or preference or argument for use, for using suffering? I think the reason is that when I'm explaining dukkha in giving like a talk, a discourse, then I'll explain it as unsatisfactoriness. But you know, in translation, unsatisfactoriness just seems so unwieldy. Uh, and it's, I think, maybe a word that without explanation, it doesn't resonate very easily with people. Maybe maybe you have different experience, but if I'm just saying, okay, somebody says I'm giving a talk, maybe I'm invited to a high school, give a talk to high school seniors on the Buddha's teaching, and I say, okay, the Buddha's teaching is focused around the problem of unsatisfactoriness. Okay, so the students look at each other and say, and they say, say what? Whereas suffering, even though it's, you know, at a, at a deep conceptual level, it is itself unsatisfactory as a rendering for dukkha, but maybe it strikes home more easily and sort of draws people's attention and uh, indicates to them that the, that the Dharma is addressing some very fundamental problem in their lives. Now, what about the term rupa? You usually translate it. You usually translate rupa as a form. Why do you prefer form over matter or materiality? Yeah, technically, rupa might be more adequately rendered as matter or materiality. But there are, I think, two reasons why. And in the middle eight discourses. Oh, yeah, Venerable Nyanamoli, in his draft manuscript of the Majumanikaya translation, had, I believe, name and form for Nama Rupa. Then, when I was preparing his manuscript for publication, then I, trans I um, revised his name and form to mentality, materiality. But then when I did the later translations, the Sangyutta Nikaya and Anguttara Nikaya, I think that there were two reasons why I went back to name and form. One of them is because the word rupa is used in several contexts in the Pali texts. One major context is as the first of the five aggregates and as the rupa component in nama rupa. And there it's really suggesting the material or physical component of existence. But it, another major context is that of the different types of sense objects. And so the object of the visual sense of visual perception 
is rupa, the the rupayatana, the form which is most accurately rendered the form base or visible form base. And then amongst the 18 elements, the element of form, of visible form. And so if you render rupa as materiality as the first aggregate, but rupa as form, when it's the object of visual perception, then one breaks the connection between them. So that was one reason was to try to preserve that connection. And then the second reason was because I think when I came to the Sangyuta Nikaya, there were a number of very potent, very deep, meaningful verses which use the expression Nama Rupa. And then if one tries to capture in verse, even though it's not metered verse, but even in free verse, something like mentality, materiality, it sounds very clumsy. But when you have name and form, it sounds, well, to my ears, it sounds nice, even though I always have to sound a note of warning that though Nama Rupa is rendered name and form, Nama does not mean name as we know it in English, but rather the, what I would call the cognitive components of experience. And Rupa does not mean form in the sense of the shape of something, but the material or physical element, the side of experience. You know, we've also been wondering where the dot, dot, dots come from in the texts. Uh, can you explain how the dot, dot, dots come in? Yeah. You see, in the Pali language, there's a word which performs that same function as the dot, 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 which would have been used probably by the ancient reciters, you know, who transmitted the text orally. And then it's that word has also been used in the old Asian script editions. The word is payala, which I think is a kind of polarization, or maybe it's a very old form of a word, pariyaya, which means something like literally like turn around, turning around. And this word, payala or pariyaya, means simply that a particular extended formula is to be repeated for a number of items in a standard list. For example, the Buddha might give a presentation in regard to the five aggregates. And the way it's come down in the text is that the same extended statement is made about each of the five aggregates individually. <laughs> What the Buddha actually said himself, of course, that I don't know and I don't think anybody else does. Did the Buddha actually repeat the full statement in regard to each aggregate individually? We don't know. But it seems that the reciters, maybe initially they would recite the full statement with regard to each item when they were memorizing the text in order to aid memorization. 
But once they had the text preserved in the form of a body to be transmitted orally, then I think they would have substituted this word payala rather than repeat the whole thing. And so in printed editions, or well, before even printing, when the manuscripts were being written on palm leaf on palm leaves, the copyists would write this word payala, or they would abbreviate it just to P-E, pay, which means like repeat, repeat that formula for each item. And so they would usually use the extended formula just for the first item and the last one. And so if there were three or four intermediate items, they would be followed with pay. The Burmese use the last syllable of payala. They have la rather than pay. Okay, and then when printed text came in with the Pali Text Society in England, they used the standard Western way of indicating that there's been an elision, and that is the ellipsis marks, the, the dot, dot, dot. And so that's how we have the, the triple dots. Interesting. I'd like to, um, if we could take a moment just to invite some of the um, students in the call to perhaps pose a question. Yeah, that's good. They shouldn't be shy at all, just any kind of question that they have on their mind. I guess I was, this is David. Yeah. I was wondering if a reason for the verses at the beginning was uh, to kind of uh, exalt the Buddha by pointing out all the people who endorsed him and his teachings. Uh, that's a very good hypothesis, actually. Yeah, that's also a very real possibility, especially, yeah, because we have, okay, the first two chapters, you know, oh, yeah, that's a very, actually, very good hypothesis. Because the first, okay, first two chapters are the Davis and then the young Davis. So the Buddha is called, in one of the epithets of the Buddha is teacher of devas and human beings, Sata Deva Manosanang. So then we have the deities coming to the Buddha for advice, the young deities coming to the Buddha for advice. And so, you know, considering that the Buddhism had to compete with other religions on the Indian scene and to win the allegiance of people who are, especially like in the small towns and villages of northern India, people would be devoted to the deities. And so if we see the deities coming to the Buddha for advice, you know, if my exalted one is going to the exalted Buddha for advice, that means that the exalted Buddha must be the teacher of my venerated deity. So I could venerate, still venerate my deity, but also look at the Buddha, look to the Buddha as the supreme teacher. And then we have King Basenity. So the great king of Kosala, the powerful state of northern India, comes to the Buddha for advice. 
Then next we have Mara. So we see the Buddha is able to upset and vanquish the evil one, the trickster, the troublemaker. Then we have the Brahmas coming to the Buddha for advice, the higher deities and the Brahmins coming for advice. You know, then the other chapters are a little bit of secondary, but then we have the last chapter of that collection is Saka, who is the ruler of the lower deities. Actually, in the Vedic system, Saka represents the deity Indra. So that's actually a very, very good hypothesis, David. Thank you. Thank you. Comments from um, others? Bonte, this is Anne. In follow-up um, to, to those comments, my question takes a slightly different turn, but I'm curious about how the, um, the topic of cosmology is um, not brought forth, it seems to me. It's not brought forth very often in our Western contemporary teaching. And I'd like to hear your thoughts about the place of the Buddhist teachings on cosmology, the yakas, devas, realms of beings, universes, mm. and how those teachings might be made relevant and accessible oh. for us lay uh, practitioners. Yeah. Okay, first I would say that when Buddhism was first being presented to the West, both by the scholars who were doing the early well, scholarly studies and investigations into Buddhism, as well as the early translators. What impressed them the most, I think, was the reasonableness, the rationality, the clarity, the lucidity, and you know the pragmatic orientation of the Buddha's teachings. And particularly those um, representatives of Buddhism or exponents of Buddhism and translators who saw their task as being part of transmission of Buddhism from Asia to the West. And so they thought that because at the core of Buddhism we have this very rational, realistic, psychologically sophisticated, empirically experiential teaching, that these cosmological teachings were just part of the cultural baggage that the Buddha took on board that he had to, that either he accepted from the Indian background or that he simply took on board because it was the prevalent belief system. And so in presenting Buddhism to, you know, college-educated, scientifically-oriented, empirically-oriented Europeans and Americans, 
we could leave this cosmological material either in the background complete we could either discard it or just leave it there quietly in the background and so that was what was done in the early transmission and then also as the teachers from from American Europe who had gone to Asia in say the 1970s, 1980s to learn Buddhism came to the back to the Western countries and started teaching. And then as Americans and Europeans also started within the Western countries to learn the practice of Buddhism, they would pick it up, you know, purely in this very direct clear experiential way without feeling a need to bring in the elements of the ancient Indian cosmology, the beliefs in devas, yakshas, other types of spirits. And so my view of, uh, on this is, you know, if one can, doesn't feel any need for belief in these other classes of beings and just wants to confine one's attention to those aspects of the Dharma which come within the purview of one's own experience, I'd say that that's fine. I don't think it's absolutely crucial to accept the beliefs, the belief in all of these different classes of deities. However, I would also say two things. <clears throat> First, the fact that these beings from other realms of existence don't come within the range of our ordinary day-to-day -day experience or even the range of our meditative experience <clears throat> does not mean that one is justified in rejecting their existence. You know, that one can adopt this perspective as what one would call a narrow scientism rather than a scientific empiricism. By scientism, one makes the full criterion of actuality or reality, that which is either accessible directly to our senses or that which can be determined through instruments that provide concrete data that we can either perceive directly or decipher through our intellects. So one should not discard the reality of such realms of existence because they're outside the sphere of our sense perception or scientific modes of acquiring knowledge. And then the second thing I would say is that if one has some understanding of the full range of mental potentialities, the potentials of the mind, which one can experience for oneself in meditation, one could say that it is fairly reasonable to accept the thesis that there are realms of existence that correspond ontologically, that is in terms of actuality or reality, to these other dimensions of conscious experience. I think of these different aspects of conscious experience. Sometimes I would use the expression as vibrational frequencies. 
And if we sort of introspect on our own minds, we could see that if we do something really bad or really unwholesome, and God forbid, but don't go around killing people or engaging acts of cruelty, but if one considers people who do things like that, even if one comes into a room with people like that, you could feel the vibration of the room is different from the vibrations one would feel if one comes into a room full of people who are living good and wholesome lives. And so consciousness is working at different vibrational frequencies. But because the base level of our consciousness is that of human existence, And so what we see with our senses are other human beings and the animals who are, though they're working at a different vibrational frequency, but they share our physical plane of existence. But one could readily see that if the fundamental vibrational frequency of consciousness were to change, then the world, which would be displayed to consciousness, and the beings with whom we would be in regular communication and regular community would be the beings who share that level of consciousness, that vibrational frequency. And that means we would be living in a different realm of existence. We would be, in effect, living in a different realm of existence, a different world. And to get this point across, what I do sometimes in in classes when giving talks, actually this idea came to me when I was living in Sri Lanka at a place, we had a hermitage in this forest near Kandy called the Forest Hermitage. And my source of information about the outside world was a shortwave, was a radio that we had with several bands. One band was AM, then there was an FM band, then there was shortwave one and shortwave two. And so my source of information was the BBC, which I would get on one of the shortwave bands. Then one day, I was trying to, evening, I was trying to get the BBC news And I was going from one end of the band to another, and I couldn't pick up the BBC. And I was wondering why I'm not getting the BBC tonight. Then I realized somehow by accident, I had shifted the band, you know, the band control from shortwave, say, one to FM. And the BBC wasn't broadcasting on FM. Then the idea occurred to me that with our human sense faculties, we are like on FM1, band FM1. So we go from the left end to the band, to the right end of the band, searching every station, but we don't see, we don't pick up the BBC. So this is like with our sense faculties, we're not picking up the Deva realms, We're not picking up the yaksha realms. We're not picking up um, the realm of the pratas or tormented spirits. Not to speak, we're not picking up the hell realms. 
okay, so suppose I were attached to the view that only what the only stations that really exist are those on the FM band, the shortwave band. What are you talking about, man? That's just part of your culturally conditioned worldview. But reality, solid reality, are the stations on the FM band. Okay, somebody who is familiar with the working of a radio with four bands will know that different stations come across on different bands. And so we could say that the Buddha and you know the great meditation masters, they're the ones who are able to tune in to all four bands on the radio. <laughs> but us with our limited senses are like the, or at least some of us are like the people with the their radio turned just to the FM band, denying the reality of the other bands. And so when coming back to your question, when we have an idea of the, or at least some acceptance of the existence of the other realms of existence, we could see the vast possibilities of the workings of karma and its fruits and it gives us a sense of the real long-term importance of, well, avoiding unwholesome deeds, of adhering to the course of wholesome action, and of working diligently to achieve liberation from all of the bands of the radio waves. Okay, th I hope that answers that question. Okay. Oh, wait, just something. Just something just occurred to to me. Just a kind of P.S. to my answer to that question. Okay. Even if one one could put aside, you know, the whole question about belief or disbelief in these other realms of existence, but if one looks at these suttas in the chapters on devas and on brahmas and the teaching to the yakas, you know, most of them are giving very good dharma teachings quite apart from the fact that they are given to beings with whom we don't have personal acquaintance. You know, so the value of those suttas doesn't really depend very much on the audience to whom they're addressed in the texts. Thank you. Thank you. That very much does address my question. Bhante, there's another series of questions that people often ask about um, the relationship of the commentaries to the suttas. Yeah, yeah. You include rather comprehensive notes that are often referring to the yeah. commentaries on the Samyutta Nikaya. Um, yeah. Would you speak to how a reader, um, how you would recommend a reader engage with the commentaries or not, um, okay. and how we might use the notes or not? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I should say first that my own understanding of the role of the commentaries has evolved over time. In the days when I was working on the middle-length discourses, <laughs> I was a very, quite fairly innocent and quite, maybe call it in quotation marks, orthodox, had a very orthodox Theravadan understanding of the text. And so I thought it was very important to take the canonical texts and the commentaries together. I still include 
in the oh now as I went on to work on the Sangyuta Nikaya, I found that there were points of I call them points of tension between the canonical text and the commentaries, particularly as I was reading some of the works of the translations with the notes of K.R. Norman, who was at that time the president of the Pali Text Society. He's an extremely knowledgeable, extremely capable philologist. He's not actually a Buddhist scholar per se, but his focus has been on the middle Indo-Aryan languages, which, <clears throat> which includes Pali and other types of related languages. And he has extremely useful bodies of notes in his translations of the Sangyuta Nikaya, Terra Terigata, and so sometimes he would point out how it's likely that the original meaning of terms <clears throat> changed between <clears throat> the oldest texts and the commentaries. Can you just excuse me for one moment? I just want to get some water to clear a little bug in my throat. Okay, so my reading of the notes by K.R. Norman and some other scholars who were writing on the early text and their relation to the commentaries made me see more clearly that the commentaries sort of reflect what I would call a particular perspective on the text. And that perspective probably evolved over several centuries and a number of generations. And now the texts, the canonical texts, the Nikayas, are a, we call this a Theravadan recension of bodies of discourses which form the common core of all of the early Buddhist schools. So that it's probable that all of the early Buddhist schools recognize some collection of what were basically the same texts maybe organized differently. There are some, you know, shuffling from one collection to another of suttas. You can see this if you are acquainted with the work, the scholarly work of, of Bhikkhu Analeo, who's been comparing the Chinese Agama versions with the Pali Nikaya versions. But the teachings themselves are substantially the same. And now as these schools move to different geographical regions in India. Over time, they developed different ways of interpretation by the teachers, and these in turn eventually turned into different 
Abhidharma systems and different modes of explanation. And so what we have is the Pali commentaries is the body of ways of explaining the texts that had been passed down in the school that used Pali as its language, a school that might have flourished in originally in Western, um, Western part of India and then came down from Western India to Sri Lanka and then developed over several centuries in India till from the evidence of the commentaries, what's said is that they were probably closed, I think the first century of the common era, first century AD. In my, well, this isn't original to me, but the general understanding is that the commentaries are kind of stratified, represent stratas of interpretation. So I would actually conjecture that the perhaps the oldest strata in the commentaries could well come from the direct disciples of the Buddha, or at least from very early generation of disciples. But then as the commentaries or the, the way of commenting on the discourses and other texts were passed down in community, the opinions of later generations of teachers were added and then the more systematized, distinctively Theravadan way of interpretation came to be introduced or inserted into the commentaries. And so now the commentaries that had been sort of compiled by Acharya Buddhaghosa and Dhammapala and that have come down to us are the fully mature, fully developed commentaries of the Theravada system. And now I draw extensive notes from these commentaries, first because I think they're very helpful. Often the commentaries are useful for explaining terms that otherwise we'd have trouble understanding or understanding correctly without the commentary. And because the commentaries also, what they do, what they do one of their functions is to integrate into a coherent body of teachings, a coherent map of doctrine and path, teachings of the Buddha that were given to different audiences over, you know, with different themes and different points of emphasis. So they sort of integrate these teachings into one overarching scheme. So that I would say is the strength of the commentaries, but I also say that what you have to be aware of is that they are reflecting or include opinions and modes of interpretation from later generations of teachers. And sometimes they'll include opinions that are particular to the Pali or Theravada school, which were not shared by some of the other schools. If you like, I could give you some concrete examples of that. Examples would be nice. Okay. One example is the treatment of path and fruit. I think if you know the 
Pali system, or the system of the Pali commentaries and the Visuddhi Magga. And this is just like standard mainstream Theravada doctrine. We have the four Muggas, the four paths, and the four Pala, the four fruits. And what the commentaries do, when they look at a particular passage, they might say, this passage is speaking about the path of stream entry. This passage is speaking about the path and fruit of the non-returner, or this passage is speaking about the four paths and four fruits. Okay, and so when one uses this commentarial scheme, one is seeing everything, or one is looking at the text in terms of the four muggas and four palas. But now if one <clears throat> puts the commentary aside, and just looks at the suttas, one never finds the word mugga or path used in the sense of that one moment path followed immediately by its fruit. What we have is statements about four types of disciples who are said to be practicing for the realization of the fruit. You know, the disciple who's practicing for realization of the fruit of stream entry, one practicing for realization of the fruit of once returner, non then for non-returner for the fruit of arhatship. But there's nothing to indicate that this, and then the commentary will gloss one practicing for the fruit to be one who is undergoing that one moment path experience. But the suttas never indicate that this disciple is on the path only for one moment. And the impression one gets is that one enters the stage of being practicing for a fruit and remains on it for a certain length of time what is said is definitely that such a disciple cannot pass away without realizing the corresponding fruit. But one gets the impression that they might be on that stage of what we might call a path for a few weeks, a few months, until the fruit takes place. Okay, so this is one example, the scheme of four paths and four fruits one gets four, and then we, we have the four fruits in the suttas, but I don't see that what is being indicated in the suttas by the fruit is a particular state of consciousness. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a momentary experience which brings a kind of breakthrough followed by another experience that might last a few moments in which one is enjoying that bliss of that breakthrough. But it's just that the terms that are used in the suttas are not used in the same way that they are being interpreted in the commentary on that point. Okay, that is one example. The second example is an issue that seems to have generated quite a lot of heat 
amongst the schools of ancient Indian Buddhism, but to my mind, I just don't see it as being extremely important. And that is the question whether rebirth follows immediately upon death or whether there is some kind of time gap between death and rebirth. Now, somehow, because maybe it's based on some statements in the Pali Abhidhamma, but the position that took hold in the Theravada school is that the moment of rebirth follows instantaneously upon the moment of death. So that with one thought moment, one dies, and then a split second later, the rebirth consciousness arises and the new life begins. Now, I found some past, now, the suttas themselves do not deal thematically with that particular issue. You know, there's no sutta that I know of where So monks, the period between death and rebirth, or there is no period, O monks, between death and rebirth. But I found a number of suttas here and there which suggest that there may be a gap between the occasion of death and the occasion of rebirth. And even for some, for a particular type of non-returner, that that gap between the death and rebirth can be a period that provides the opportunity for liberation to take place so that one could reach arahanship within that intermediate stage and then not take rebirth at all. I think I call attention to some of those passages in the notes to the Ankutara Nikaya, if you like, I could um, sort of pick them out and send them to Shaila, if, if you're interested in that point. That would be great, and I can distribute it to the group. Um, it does sound like you're encouraging, though, um, some reflection on the commentarial perspective in conjunction with the reading of the suttas. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, but definitely. That, that reflection wouldn't be somewhat critical, like not to just take the commentarial interpretation as the interpretation, but. Yeah, that is, yeah that is so, but I don't want to be seen as encouraging what I take to be the other attitude that I've seen some people take, usually those who haven't read the commentaries at all or who have a particular disposition. It's usually what we would call a dosa charita. You know, it's a aversion temperament. And then they become what I would call sutta fundamentalists and say, I'm only going to accept the pure word of the Buddha, the commentaries, just the opinions of worldlings, just useless or distorting or misrepresentations. But rather, I think you know, the commentaries can be very helpful, very valuable. It's just that one has to understand that, that they are 
teachings or interpretations which evolved over centuries, which embed the opinions of generations of teachers, and then which are often looking at the discourses through the perspective of one school which developed its own distinctive doctrinal points or opinions, often in distinction and contradistinction with the views of some of the other schools. Thank you. Um, I don't think we're going to have time to look at all the specific discourses that um, our students um, uh, proposed as um, having something in them that we would like your input on. But I do wonder if either you have any personal favorites or any particular discourses in the Samyutta Nikaya that you'd like to um, uh, look at in, in, in particular, or if anyone on the call wants to propose uh, maybe one particular discourse that we can take a look at. Actually, if you would like if you would like to go, we could go till 9, 9 p.m. Well, well, uh, here it's 9 p.m. to 6 p.m. in your time. That would be great. Thank you. Okay. So if you have like some other questions, then we could take them. Okay. Well, Bonte, did you have any personal favorite discourses? Or shall I ask uh, the, um, the other students on the call to propose a, a discourse? I remember one of the questions you had on the sheets... I've not yet learned how with Windows 8, I think I could get how to get the two. What was the it's question very, about? No, this, this is very clumsy using Skype and Microsoft Word with, with Windows 8. They screwed it. It was much simpler with the earlier version of Windows. Um, let's see. I think you asked, like, what took particular time when I was doing the Sangyutta translation, something like that. But one thing that I enjoyed a lot doing, but it took a lot of time and a lot of revisions and reworking, were the, was the division with the verses. Yeah, it was very rewarding and very, I would say, inspiring to do because the verses are sometimes very profound and very pithy with meaning, but because verse is often quite concise, and sometimes it would be the variant readings are more numerous in regard to verses, you know, little differences in reading between the Sri Lankan version, the Burmese version, the Pali Text Society version. Um, and so it took a lot of time to work on the verses. And then though I didn't try to use, I wouldn't have tried to use meted verse, but I wanted to have verses which are in some way a bit memorable rather than just translate the verses in the form of prose, the way some translators do. And so I had to compile a lot of notes. And then one of my monk friends who was helping me with this was filled with enthusiasm and he went tracking down the parallels to the Pali verses that had been preserved in some of the counterpart collections from the other early Buddhist schools, like the Mahavastu, which was a text of the 
Lokutra Vada School. Then there was a collection. Oh, somebody, a scholar in Japan, found Sanskrit counterparts of the verses that had been preserved. And then I felt responsible to deal with these parallels in the notes. And so all of that work took so much time. I think working the verse division itself might have taken about two years, which doesn't mean that I was working, you know, a full day on the verse collection. There would be like gaps in my work on it, but from start to finish, it could have taken about two years. Okay, if anybody else now wants to, to speak up, please go ahead. Well, this is David again, yep. sir. I guess I wanted to ask you about the Samsapa Sutta or the handful of leaves. Yeah. Because I, especially for, you know, us lay people, there's a choice that we have to make on what, what we're going to be able to focus on. Right, yeah, yeah. And I'd just like to hear whatever you have to say about that, if you would. For the benefit of the recording, I'd like to just say that that's um, in the Samyutta Nikaya, um, section 56, um, sutta number 31. Yeah. Of course, the Sengsipa Sutta, this is the sutta where the Buddha is, work, is walking in the woods together with a group of monks. Then at one point he stops and he picks up a handful of leaves, and then he asks the monks, what do you think is more numerous, the hand, the, the number of leaves that I'm holding in my hand, or the number of leaves on the tr on the trees in the in the woods? And then, of course, the monks say that the number of leaves in the hand are very few, whereas the number of leaves on the trees in the woods are much more numerous. And then the Buddha said, in the same way, the things that I have realized through my own Abhijanati, that I've directly known for myself, those are like the number of leaves in the trees, whereas the things that I've taught you are like the number of leaves in my hand, very few. And so what are those things that what are those things that I've taught to you? Those are the noble truth of dukkha, its origin, cessation in the path. Okay, so we could say that this discourse is again it's stressing what I would call the core, the fundamental teaching. So if, you know, time is limited, then I would say, you know, definitely focus on the Four Noble Truths, which doesn't mean that the only thing that one will read in the Sangyutta Nikaya is the chapter 56, which is on the Four Noble Truths, because extensions out of the Four Noble Truths will include for the truth of dukkha at least the chapters on the five aggregates and the twelve, six or twelve sense bases, and also the chapter on the six elements, that's chapter 14. And then the second noble truth is elaborated through the teachings on dependent origination in chapter 12. And then in addition to the eight factors of the Eightfold Noble Path, 
we have different presentations on the way of practice in the four foundations of mindfulness, the seven factors of enlightenment, the five faculties, and so on. Okay, so I'd say, you know, that those other chapters from the Sangyutta will also be relevant if one is going to learn more about the Four Noble Truths. And then I would say that for lay people, you know, it seems to me that the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, was a collection prepared primarily for use within the monastic community, particularly apart from the collections with verses. Because, as I mentioned, I think in my introduction to the Sangyutta Nikaya, the teachings on like the subjects, like the five aggregates, 12 sense bases, could have been seen as intended for those monks who are specialists in Buddhist doctrine, and also for those who are practicing insight at very, very advanced levels and wanted to sort of consummate their work by having having at hand a discourse that would sort of knock the last residue of delusion or ignorance out from their mind. Of course, this doesn't mean that these suttas are sort of a special preserve for monastics, but um, the focus is on a type of practice that fits within the scheme of the monastic life. Now, the collection that sort of includes many more discourses for lay people dealing with, you know, the challenges and problems of day-to-day life, of day-to-day lay life, is the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses. So I'd say that, you know, one should also focus or take up or learn the discourses in the Anguttara Nikaya again, selectively. Thank you very much. Would somebody else like to propose a question or a topic? Yes, um, Bonte, uh, this is Katrina. I have a, a question about a particular sutta. This is a, um, chapter 36, um, and it's, a, um, I guess, just to kind of summarize uh, where it is up to the point of my question is, is that it uh, seems to be in, in reference to the... Uh, Successive subsiding of formations, with those yeah. formations being feeling, yeah. um, being subject to change. There, there's a series of progression in which there's the um, successive subsiding, and then it goes on to successive cessation, and then follows yeah. up with uh, tranquilization. Yeah. And um, I really am curious about if there's some uh, some distinction that would be helpful to tease out of that progression. For the benefit of those listening on the recording, I'd like to say that that's in the Vedana Samyutta, which is the 36, and it's Sutta number 11. Yeah, I I looked into that when I saw uh, the questionnaire that uh, Shaila sent out. Apart from different... First, I don't think that 
the sequence of these suttas, uh, of those terms, is significant. Going from, I think, Niroda, cessation, comes first, Upasama, subsiding, comes second, tranquilization, comes third. Um, I don't think those terms are set out in a sequence that one goes from cessation to subsiding to tranquilization. And though the words have somewhat different flavors, I don't know that there's a difference between the actual. Hello? Are you there? Yes, yes, I am. There was a little pause or silence. Um, I don't think that there's a difference in from the experiential experiential angle of what is actually experienced by those states. It's just that vupassama, a, a subsiding, gives the sense more of, you know, like a wave settling down, whereas niroda, cessation, gives more the sense of something coming to a stop. And pati pasati, this actually seems, well, gives the sense of something becoming stiller and stiller until it stops. But it seems to be just a difference in the flavor of the words rather than something different at the experiential level. Okay, thank you. That's that's helpful to uh, realize to hear that there can be just uh, as as you said a, a difference in the flavor of the presentation yeah. um, of the verse. Yes, thank you. Well, Bonte, I as we're approaching the end of our time this evening, I do have a couple of questions left, okay. which have to do with what you're working on now and what we might go to next. I heard a rumor that you were translating the Sutta Is that true? Or what? what is your current project? Where did you hear that rumor? I'd rather not say it was a rumor. <laughs> well, I thought I'd just take a look at it and see how, whether I could persist with it. So I've been just working on that a little bit. So we don't anticipate a published version in the near future? Well, actually, I've been translating some of the suttas in the the Sutta Nipata, along with, well, the commentary to those suttas. Okay. Because I found sometimes the commentary explanations are very illuminating and... um, very elegant, elegant. That that text in particular, the teachings are very pithy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, particularly the chapter, it's called the chapter of the eights, Atakanipata. And the, what I like best is the fifth chapter, Parayanavaga, the going to the beyond. Yeah, it's a beautiful, um, that the ending is a beautiful chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I guess we'll just have to see where that develops. And yeah, we'll have to see how I get it. <laughs> um, 
in in our study groups for the last um, decade or so, we've been do, meeting monthly locally, and then in the past few years with an online group also, yeah. to sort of plow through the various texts. We've read yeah. the Majjhima Nikaya, the Samyutta Nikaya, the Udana, the Sutta Nipata, and we worked with um, the anthology that you that you published of the Anguttara Nikaya, as well as your um, introduction in the Buddha's words. So we're considering, well, what should we do for next year? Because we'll be finished with the Samyutta Nikaya this, at the end of this year. What should our next text be in? So naturally, I think of the Anguttara Nikaya. But that's another yeah. big one, though. So yeah. I'm wondering, what um, uh, could you say a few words, perhaps, about the numbered discourses of the Buddha that might stimulate our enthusiasm for this text? Yeah, well, what I would say that might be helpful to you in knowing how to present this text, there's actually, well, two ways one could go about it. At the end of the introduction in the numerical discourses, what I did was to present what I call a thematic guide to study of the Anguttara Nikaya. I made up a scheme, a kind of sequential scheme of topics, and then I put the numbers of the suttas under those topic headings. And so if one proceeds from topic to topic, then one covers the main themes in the Anguttara Nikaya, moving in a sequence from those that are, I think I started off with the suttas beginning with the Buddha, or the suttas that deal with the Buddha, both from a biographical perspective as well as from what we might call his archetypal significance as the Tathagata. Then we move into, I've just opened it so I can refresh my memory. Then we move into general statements about the Dharma and discipline. Then we come to teachings about the household life, the family, right livelihood relationships, and so on. Then the qualities that lead upward, you know, like faith and confidence, friendship, merit, generosity, moral discipline, right speech, wrong speech, the opposita. Then acquiring the sense of disenchantment with the world. Then overcoming the defilements of the mind. Then the path of renunciation, monastic life, meditation, serenity and insight, the subjects of meditation, then wisdom, insight. Then we come to the Sangha aspect, the institutional Sangha, the noble Sangha, the Aryan Sangha, and then different types of persons, good and bad persons. So, you know, because there's so many suttas and the numerical discourses, one doesn't have to take all of the suttas under each heading, but one could take a selection of suttas, and this way one will get a broad overview of the numerical discourses. So that's one way to treat it, which is, I would say, that's the preferable way for relative newcomers to the suttas. But those who are somewhat veterans of sutta reading might just want to go in from the beginning, you know, with sutta number one, 
the book of ones and then goes through all the ways to the 11, you know, the chapter of the 11s. Because then the interesting thing about the Anguttara Nikaya is that because there's no topical thread that binds these suttas together in their sequence, you don't know what's going to come up next. You know, you could be reading a sutta about how a lay person uh, who's looking after his wife, how he provides for his wife and family, the four things that conduce to harmony in the household. Then the next sutta is four different types of samadhi to be developed by a meditator. And then the next group of four might be four ways in which um, the god Saka got to be king of the gods. You know, so it's a shifting kaleidoscope of topics. So you make the choice how to how to approach it. Was there anything you found particularly interesting in working with the numbered discourses? You said that you thought this text as geared a little bit more for lay people. Um, yeah, well, it has a, a lot of discourses that are dealing with lay people with lay life. A lot of, or quite a number of discourses which are spoken to Anatta Pindika, who was you know Buddha's lay, chief lay supporter, and some discourses given to the lay woman supporter Visaka. Um, as well as suttas which are given to monks. And so it's also good for lay people to read the suttas given to monks. And what struck me about the numerical discourses is that it, my suspicion is that the numerical discourses could have arisen as a maybe a guidebook for expositors of the Dhamma to use when giving discourses, because when giving discourses, it's helpful to have a numerical scheme. You know, if you have to give a lecture for an hour and then you take a, like a little slip of paper when you're preparing and you reduce your ideas to maybe five items of this, seven items of this, and then you don't have to bring a a whole sheaf of notes with you, but you just have a little slip of paper with five items. And so the Anguttara Nikaya, because it has the suttas all reduced to numerical schemes, would serve for giving, a, for a teacher giving teachings to students. So with, I would think that the teachings that were directed to lay people would have served, you know, after the Buddha gave them originally, then when monastics were giving teachings to a lay group, they would be able to pick up this discourses. Then they have five items here, seven items here, and just take them and then elaborate on each item. And then similarly, if an elder monk is giving a teaching to his group of junior monks, you know, his novice monks, again, he'll take a sutta with five items, six items, seven items and then elaborate upon it as a way of, of teaching the younger monks. 
I've also found you can open that book to almost any page. If I don't know what to give as a Dhamma talk, I can just open the Anguttara Nikaya and find something. <laughs> yeah, that, that is very true. That's very true. Yeah. Well, you've been very generous with your time, Bonte. Thank you very much. Okay, okay. It's been my pleasure. But is there any last thing that you would like to say about any of these texts um, before we wind up? Well, just like one advice that I, one piece of advice that I'd give for those who are reading, is to do something similar to what I did. You don't have to make up as extensive a set of notes that I did, but when you're reading and discussing, take notes. Don't just, you know, listen. In the old days, it seems before writing and literacy developed the students of the Dhamma had much better memories than we do. And so the way that the teachings were preserved were by oral transmission. But one idea that one finds, one sees this, I think, in a few places in the Nikaya, but it's repeated quite often in the Anguttara Nikaya, the way to learn the Dhamma goes through an educational process that mentions five steps so the five steps, one is, the first is listening, one listens, and the second is retains in mind. The third is one repeats verbally or recites verbally. The fourth is one examines with the mind. And then the fifth is one penetrates well by view or by insight. And so for the ancients, before literacy developed, they would listen, and then after listening, they would apply themselves to the task of preserving in the mind by memory. For us, now that we have writing, our way to preserve by memory is when we read, when we listen to a discourse or lecture, when we have a discussion and important points come up, take notes, because that will help preserve what one has encountered so that one can review it later. Reviewing is the counterpart of reciting verbally. And then, of course, when one reviews, then one will be inclined to examine or investigate the teaching. And then all of that learning it's not just loading oneself with intellectual or conceptual baggage, but that's all providing a very solid foundation of material to penetrate well with view, with vision or insight. I appreciate this advice very much. I think it's extremely important to consider yeah. how we approach the texts and yeah. how we engage with them. Yeah, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, uh, discourage anybody from memorizing them either. No, we, not at all. We don't do this in our online class because of the nature of the technology, but in our local classes at the beginning of each session, um, those members who memorized a sutta or a portion of a sutta that month will recite it. Now, most people don't memorize the whole suttas. We only have a few people who have the time and the yeah. uh, mental inclination to do that. But everybody who 
takes the time to memorize something, whether it's a verse, a passage, or a whole sutta, um, uh, remarks at how uh, much more powerful and meaningful the teachings yes. are. That is so. That is really so, yeah. We also have a couple of students who come to the classes with um, flow charts of the of or or charts or structures, basically kind of putting out the structure in a, on a paper um, with categories or with a flow chart, that kind of approach, some way of engaging with the material and trying to understand um, its significance and how it fits together and um, and uh, works. Actually, that's very useful too. Because the teachings are often, you know, the discourses are often organized, if you call these nested categories. Yeah. And such that, but it's not simply nested categories, but is there a technical term for this where what seems to be a subcategory will then reflect the whole scheme at a different level. Uh, you know, just to take an example of this, we have, okay, the Four Noble Truths, then within the Four Noble Truths, we have the eight factors of the Eightfold Path, and then we have the first factor of the Eightfold Path is right view, then what is right view? But right view is the view of the Four Noble Truths. And then we take the Eightfold Path, we go further down the Eightfold Path, we have right mindfulness, then we take, you know, we branch out of right mindfulness, the four bases, the four foundations of mindfulness, then we have the fourth foundation, contemplation of Dhammas, then within contemplation of Dhammas, then we get, you know, at one level we could get the five aggregates, Another level, we get the um, six sense bases, and another level of Dhammanupassana, or another branch of Dhammanupassana, we have again the Four Noble Truths. So it's almost like mirrors reflecting, lined up in such a way that they're reflecting one another at different angles. Yeah, and it can all it can actually be visually beautiful, beautiful. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a bit, the the flowcharts and the graphs are sometimes particularly interesting when we get a discourse that has, say, a four part structure, but there's a logical there are different logical possibilities where they share many of the same elements, but one thing is different in each of the of the um, items. So maybe yeah. four kinds of people, and there's they they share all the characteristics, but one is different or varies or is is gradation, and one can see that when one structures it out on paper, yeah. whether it's in a visual or a um, right. written yeah. form or something. Yeah, that is so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we covered quite a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I really appreciate your your generosity with your time and your knowledge, and really, especially um, translating these texts for us. They're oh, an amazing you. gift of Dhamma. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank okay. you, thank you very much, and yeah. I hope you. So have we just. A, yeah. Oh, do, would you like to end with a chant? 
Yeah, whenever I give discourses, I always end with the sharing the merits chant. Oh, that so, would be lovely. Okay, so this is sharing the merits with the <laughs> with the devas, <laughs> the <laughs> dragon spirits, and then with all beings and and the fear spirits. The Buddhas are the fear spirits. Akasa ta chabuma ta deva naga mahitika. Punyantang anomoditva chirangra kantu sasanang akasa ta chabumata teva naga mahidika punyantang anomoditva chirangra kantu desanang akasa ta chabumata teva naga mahidika punyantang anomoditva chirangra kantu mang parang eta vatacha mehi Sampadang punya sampadang, sabe devanumo dantu, sabasampati sidia, sabe bootanumo dantu, sabasampati sidia, sabe satanumo dantu, sabasampati sidia.